Welcome back to the Lubber's Hole, your Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. As we are reading through chapter by chapter the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. And Mike, we've had a couple of weeks away talking about the Peter Weir movie. We're back now with Reverse of the Medal. Catch us up. Where were we three weeks ago? Where might we be headed this week? You bet, Ian. When last we left our heroes, we had learned that Jack's case, his trial in this stock exchange fraud, was going to be heard by a Judge Quinborough, who is also a member of the cabinet and politically hates radicals. So he was out to get General Aubrey and his associates, and and Jack was kind of getting swept up in this whole band of defendants here. Now, Jack's lawyer, Mr. Lawrence, has said repeatedly that Jack's entire defense rests on finding Ellis Palmer, this man who shared the information about the stocks with Jack in that that chase ride. Now, Stephen had become rich. He had inherited from his godfather, and Ray had all of a sudden paid off his gambling debts. And so with all this newfound money, Stephen hired a thief taker to find Ellis Palmer, and put out an enormous reward to anybody who could turn up Palmer before the court trial started. Sophie, we're delighted, is by Jack's side in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jack, you know, through all this, is just convinced that English justice will free him. He kind of sees this kind of like the Navy in a naval trial here. Well, sadly, Palmer turned up dead and faceless, so does absolutely no good for Jack's defense. And Lawrence requested Stephen to go try to convince Jack that judges and lawyers uh, may be corrupt and, and that, you know, he really can't rely on, on this court to set him free the way he seems to be. Stephen does that um, because Lawrence has said, you know, Jack could actually face the pillory and be dismissed the service if he loses this trial here. But throughout it all, Jack remained convinced that the jury of his English peers will free him. Now, this week, Stephen, not convinced as Jack is, plans to buy the surprise for Jack to command in case he is dismissed from the service and convicted. Blaine has some thoughts for Stephen on this and some other things. Lawrence, Jack's lawyer, gets the Spanish influenza right in time for the trial. And Lord Byron makes an appearance, at least in verse reference, as Jack's friends work together to help him as his trial begins. Well, here we go, Mike. This is the setup for this this famous stock exchange trial. And we're going to spend a lot of time this chapter with, not so much with Jack, but with the network of people who are around him trying to help him. And of course, the mainstay of that help is Stephen. And we open the chapter with Stephen reflecting and writing to himself. He's returned to opium, which is bad enough news. And he's also back to his journal writing, especially since Diana had left. He'd written about medicine and about natural philosophy and about personal affairs all in Catalan in the language of his youth. And Mike, we're getting a really strong signal here that Stephen is really under stress. He's really up against it. He really relies on the fundamentals of his character here. So hence, journal writing, the Catalan language and opium. Oh dear. He he doesn't include in this journal any intelligence observation since he's been caught out that way before. He's been embarrassed by people in America, for example, capturing his written papers and looking in there and discovering these odd entries. So his first entry lists two dangerous, two grave blunders that he's made. First, he notes that he had offered too big of a reward for information on Palmer so that everybody, including Pratt, was out looking for him. And that had led, he thinks, to the murder of Palmer by the people who sent him. So he played his hand a little hard and he caused harm. The second blunder that he reflects on was the heavy-handed way that he had tried to manipulate Jack. And just like you said, Mike, in the introduction there, he'd tried to lay it on thick to Jack to see if he could encourage Jack to incriminate his father. He'd talked in denigrating terms about English justice, but now he says he knew Jack would not put up with foreigners like Stephen criticizing his country. Stephen's afraid that this attempt, this heavy-handed attempt, might have made things worse. And he's worried also that buying the surprise could also make things worse. So Stephen's in a bit of a quandary here. He's really grateful, therefore, to have an intelligent, goodwill gentleman to sit down with him and advise with him on surprise. He's going to go visit that gentleman. Of course, it's Sir Joseph Blaine. So 
He does succumb to the temptation and drink off a glass of his laudanum in the afternoon. And emboldened by that, he goes out to meet Sir Joseph. Yeah. And, and Stephen had asked Sir Joseph the day before to, to think about this plan about buying the surprise, to take some time and then to come back to him. And, and Blaine does. He comes back now and he says, you know, he thinks it's a good idea you know, to buy surprise for Jack to command under three assumptions. And the first assumption is that Stephen means to buy it regardless of whether Jack is found guilty or not, because the sale is the day before the trial will end. So uh, Stephen says, yes, absolutely, because if Jack's innocent, he'll just buy the surprise from Stephen. He wanted to buy it anyways. And if not, it would provide Jack with a refuge if he's dismissed the service and Stephen with a man of war for botanizing, for you know, yeah. carrying on his natural philosophy. And at this point, as the owner of the ship, he thinks perhaps he could persuade Jack to, uh, to stop every once in a while for an important occasion. Stephen also tells Blaine, and this is Blaine's second assumption, that he does not contemplate any naval intelligence work until Blaine's confidence is fully restored. So, you know, we're, we're delighted to hear that Stephen is not running off to France with this mission that Ray has dangled out in front of him. And finally, Blaine says, you know, you have to have ready money in England. And Stephen shows Sir Joseph three drafts drawn on, Stephen tells him, the Bank of the Holy Ghost and of Commerce. Uh, and Sir Joseph kind of looks at them and is blown away and says, my gosh, you know, one, one of these drafts alone could build, equip and man a 74, much less by the old surprise, our dear <laughs> surprise. And I, I, I don't know about you, Ian, I was a little bit taken back here. The, the bank of the Holy Ghost and of commerce. And I was like, yeah. wow, you know, <laughs> I, I drive down the street and see a lot of bank names. I've never seen one quite like that. But sure enough, as as O'Brien, it's it's grounded and rooted in history. There's a, a Banco de Santo Spirito, Bank of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, as we say now, uh, founded by Pope Paul V in 1605. It was the huh. first national bank in Europe, the Bank of the Papal States, also the first public deposit bank in Rome, and until 1992, when it merged with another one, was the oldest continuously operating bank there. And there were other similarly named banks operating in Europe at the time. So, now for me, this you know kind of this brings out the old theologian myself and the one I'm married to here. You know, I, I kind of find the mingling of the Holy Ghost and commerce a bit odd. But watching today's televangelist, I guess it appears to be all the rage. <laughs> <laughs> it's great as well. It, it positions Stephen once again as this slightly otherworldly person. Like right. there's, there's nobody in Protestant England in the commercial world of London that would recognize a bank called the Bank of the Holy Ghost. But it's absolutely part of the Catholic infrastructure and hierarchy that Stephen actually is a big part of. So really, really funny that also Stephen's unworldly in the way that he doesn't know the value of what he's got. He doesn't know that these drafts are way more than he would need even to make a generous bid, I think, for the surprise. Now, this is great news. And Blaine, once he's kind of set that surprise to one side, says that the surprise herself could make a splendid privateer. There are not going to be many merchantmen that could outrun or outgun her. And they get into this conversation, Mike, about the, the technicalities of what letters of mark will the ship take out. And remember, the letters of mark would be taken out in the name of the owner. That would be Stephen. Letters of mark and reprisal, they say, are going to be needed against each hostile state, one for each enemy country, allowing the surprise to legally go out and take any of their ships and preventing, in turn, English Navy ships from kind of stepping in and usurping the prizes. And Mike, it's, it's nice to hear that we've seen privateers and their various other kinds as counterparts to lots of the action scenes that Jack's been part of. And we're kind of being treated to what does it take to live on the other side, to be part of the setup and the ownership and the kind of contracting of a privateer. And again, we I think we're a bit of a signal that we're a bit outside of our normal realm here. Yeah. Uh, although it was fascinating to me, and I think it came up before in a prior book, Blaine mentions it again, that they're like 50 or 60,000 men serving yeah. on these privateers. So really quite an operation. Yeah. And it's not like we're considering joining this kind of weird hole in the corner undertaking. There's, right. there's some serious, serious established organizations that are doing this. And it's, it's nice as well, listening to Stephen and Blaine debating this. I'm reminded of conversations with teenagers. Stephen says, I'd like your advice. 
And then Blaine says, okay, tell me what's on your mind. And then Stephen says, okay, here's what I'm planning to do. And Blaine says, ha, huh, have you thought about X and Y and Z? And Stephen goes, yeah, 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 I've thought of all of that. I know I've got all the logistics planned and I've got all the timing planned. <laughs> I know how I'm going to make He's got everything there. Like, so he wasn't really asking for advice. I think he was saying, I'm going to do this. Please, will you tell me that it's a good idea? Yeah, right. <laughs> I need your blessing. Right. <laughs> That's right. So Stephen's uh, a bit of a perpetual teenager anyway, I think. There you go. So he's he's got it all planned out. He's planning to go down on that same day to arrive in time to buy the ship and come straight back in case he'll be needed to testify on the third day of Jack's trial. Because as we sit here at this moment in the text, the trial is about to start. Stephen, though, interestingly, doesn't want to be in the courtroom to see Jack being baited or humiliated. And I guess, again, we're seeing this idea that the justice isn't going to be as smooth and complacent and even-handed as Jack hopes it's going to be. Yeah, and, and it was fascinating to me, Ian, that you know, this it's sort of the sensibilities of the times and how yeah. people handle themselves. And I'm, I'm sure there's still some of this today, but I think, you know, kind of my modern day post-therapy self would be saying, oh, we all have to be there to give Jack some moral support. And Stephen's like, look, this is going to be really tough stuff. Of course, Jack doesn't want a bunch of people hanging around there. We should not be in there. I, I, I kind of love that. It was a fascinating view for me. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's meant to raise the question in our mind, how will Jack get on with certain yeah. kinds of support not present in the room for him? Ah. Anyway, St- Stephen's still busy with his, his really excellent, really rational, really well thought out plan to pursue this surprise as a letter of Mark option. He's running Blaine through his plan that he's got to keep Tom Pullings involved because, of course, Tom Pullings is also in a bit of a spot. He hasn't got much chance of a command at the moment. And I love the way the text says that Tom can help keep Stephen avoid from being cheated right, left and center the ship pillage stripped of her copper and probably exchanged for a mud scow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is great. Some some seaman-like language there. Um, Stephen's given some thought, as well as having Tom around to help with the, the bidding and the and the contracting side, he's given some thought to manning the ship. So it looks in many ways like he's got all the bases covered here. And then the as so often in the conversation between Stephen and Blaine, they're going to get into musing a little bit. They step back and take a bit of a philosophical perspective. Blaine has this really nice line on what it takes for people to be tempted by the quasi-piratical life of a privateer. It is an interesting reflection, he says, upon the civic sense that its imperative weakens according to the square of the distance from land, so that the mild fisherman of Dover, always willing to help the distressed merchantman, becomes the sea wolf of the Caribbees, very like a pirate, and that he goes aboard a corsair knowing very well that this will happen. Like, I love the inverse square law. That's very Enlightenment era. Right. But there's, 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 a, there's a bit of a, an ethical theme here, isn't there? That the further people get away from society and from judgment, the less they care so much about what's going to happen when they do something that can't be seen by their peers. Right, right. The old sunshine law that we yeah. used to you know, kind of say, you know, ah, if everybody could see what you're doing, would you still do the same thing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I, I love this. I love seeing Stephen and Blaine together. And, and Blaine then kind of takes Stephen out and sort of underneath the privacy of an umbrella in a bit of a rain shower, Blaine tells Stephen that that suspected mouse he had, you know, had in naval intelligence has turned out to be a monstrous rat. Mm. Um, uh, Ryan writes uh, in Blaine's words here, what on the face of it was a commonplace, tolerably unscrupulous struggle for power and influence and patronage and a free hand with the Secret Service money now seems to me and to some of my friends to have an air of treason. He says, you know, yeah, absolutely. Fraud is present, but it's more than that. And he tells Stephen that one of the bearer bonds from the Dine, you know, from that kind of unfortunate brass box, was proposed for negotiation in Stockholm, but then withdrawn. And the good news was it was not connected to Matron in any way. So that kind of clears the, the idea was, you know, Matron had brought all this stuff back. If people were starting to, you know, kind of launder this money, they might tie it back to Stephen had done this and let him take the blame. But since Matron's not involved in this, it kind of freed Joseph Blaine's other friends in the other intelligence services to kind of pursue it further. I think they didn't want to muddy Stephen up. But we do find out that this was done 
by someone in a different cabinet department at a much more senior level and somebody who had access to a king's messenger. And this allows Sir Joseph to take the conversation in a new direction. It does. And by the way, this whole thread about the potential treason at a higher level in a different department is, is going to run and run and run. So strap in for a very, very long haul on this one. But for now, this gives, as we say, Sir Joseph the chance to point Stephen in the direction of a new opportunity. And Mike, we're, we're going to have a little, a little new Cochrane moment here. Blaine asks Stephen what he thinks, what Stephen thinks about the independence of Chile and Peru. Now, they, they, they talk it over. They talk about how Stephen's opposed to slavery and tyranny and that those places have governments that are especially prone to slavery and tyranny. He could perhaps undertake an unofficial expedition combining what Blaine calls his character as a natural philosopher with that of a natural liberator. And Stephen, I think, is pretty close to being persuaded. He says that normally my heart would beat to quarters at the prospect, but they agree to keep it under discussion while the trial goes on. But it's interesting that they've raised this at the same moment, as well as being the real protagonist in this trial in the stock exchange fraud, Thomas Cochrane also became, after that time in his career, also became involved in the liberation and the setting up of the navies of Chile and Peru. So in the in the Cochrane world, the timeline was a bit more stretched out, but these are both things that became real for the Cochrane character. So we can already see, I think, a little bit more Cochrane-inspired story arc coming for Jack and Stephen. So it's been raining outside, and they're about to head back to allow time for their feet to dry before dressing for dinner. And we get this really lovely quote from Blaine. He says, It's very disagreeable, even dangerous to pull on silk stockings over wet feet. Mike, I, I always find this. Every time I'm pulling on my silk stockings, they, they <laughs> snag. It's terrible. They must have time, he says, to dry naturally. Me rubbing with a towel is never quite the same. Ah, oh, very, very nice period touch there. Right, right. And then finally, Stephen wonders why he has to dress for dinner, and he says he's looking forward to seeing Mr. Donovan. And we hear nothing else of Mr. Donovan other than his name being dropped here. Is this another one of those O'Brien name drop things? It, it, you know, it's it's fabulous because, you know, we, we've heard that, you know, Blaine's listed some other luminaries going to be there, which doesn't matter to Stephen. But, ah, oh, and Donovan will be there. Oh, well, I'll dress for Donovan. And I'm going, Donovan, come on, what's that? So it, it is, as you say, you had a great uh, O'Brien Easter egg here. Edward Donovan, who uh, is a famous Anglo-Irish writer, a natural history illustrator, and amateur zoologist. He was born O'Donovan in Ireland, but later changed his name to Donovan. So we mm. have some you know, kind of nice parallels with our, our Patrick O'Brien kind of going the other way here. Um and fascinatingly, he wrote incredible numbers of volumes, collections of books, meticulous illustrations, but and and from uh, you know natural philosophy all over the world, but always used for the most part specimens from the collections of other people. He would buy all these specimens and then draw them up and write them about them, and he was also a, a gentleman member of many of these societies, so he could use their specimens as well. Uh, but he, you know, he ultimately set up a natural history museum, but the museum was not financially as successful as he hoped. He'd spent all this money on these specimens, uh, and he had, it was what he claimed to be an unscrupulous bookseller, and he had published through a bookseller rather than a publisher, and ultimately, when he and his family were essentially bankrupt, you know, he kind of blamed the bookseller. So we get this kind of thing with uh, thinking back to Mowat and his arrangement for his poems and a little bit of O'Brien <laughs> publishers here. So, uh, you know, all these things going on with Donovan uh, that, you know, just to drop that name and leave it at that, it's great. Now, I don't want anybody to be confused if, if you're kind of a 60s person like me. I mean, you, you immediately think, oh, Donovan, you know, the, the Scottish singer-songwriter and the song The Naturalist's Wife. Do I see you coming home Coming home to me Could it be that I see coming home 
Would O'Brien have been referring to that? So, you know, The Naturalist's Wife, I'm sure, is a song you've never heard. But I hope you've heard of something like Mellow Yellow, if you're the 60s. It's one of my favorite tunes. I'm just mad about saffron. Saffron's mad about me. I'm just mad about saffron. She's just mad about me. Uh, it's got a Beatles connection. Supposedly, McCartney uh, did the bass and some uh, some uncredited vocals there. And there's a reference to electric bananas becoming the very next craze. Well, it was a reference that Donovan and Lennon, who would John Lennon would would look for all these crazy things that are going on in the day and sneak them into their songs. <laughs> you know. It was a reference to women's vibrators, electric bananas. But those of us in the 60s misinterpreted it as <laughs> smoking banana peels and, and, and appealing. <laughs> so everybody was smoking banana peels rather than buying their, their <laughs> you know, the vibrators. So anyway, so there's, there's a great tie-in that I'm sure O'Brien did not mean. But hey, I wouldn't put it past him just for fun. <laughs> Ah, oh, the 60s. Yes. <laughs> oh, we've missed no, it. Them. The parts that I can remember, which is very little. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I don't know quite how to make a link back here. I think I don't think there's any safe link that I can make back to the text, apart from to say that the end of the day comes. And the next day, <laughs> Stephen visits the lawyer. Stephen visits Lawrence before leaving town. And remember, Lawrence was somebody seen as having a good reputation and a bit of a fighter but not the first choice. And we get a little bit more of the foreboding associated with just how Lawrence might be able to set about his, uh, his, his role in this trial. Lawrence is upset, first of all, that Jack wants to come to the trial every day. Jack says he prefers to see what's going on, and Lawrence sees this as a sign that Jack doesn't trust him. And Stephen reminds Lawrence that that might actually have been Stephen's doing, where they had deliberately worked hard to um, undermine Jack's confidence in law courts and lawyers. and. On we go now with all the descriptions of the ways in which Lawrence either thinks it might not go right or is just feeling a bit out of sorts. Mike, it's it's almost comic, and maybe it actually is comic, just how lots of minor things are badly set up for Jack and Lawrence and this trial. Everyone, not only his lawyer, but all of his friends are telling him, there's a contingency you might lose. His lawyer is sick. He's sneezing and blustering with this flu. His lawyer thinks his client Jack is deluded. His best friend, Stephen, has been trying to convince him of the weakness of the legal system, but that's been misunderstood and backfired. And now we learn that one of the star prosecution witnesses is is going to be Lieutenant Grant. And Lieutenant Grant is probably the only person below admiral rank in the Navy who still virulently, personally, openly disagrees with Jack about something. Oh, right, right. And, and, you know, kind of we remember Jack saying, oh, you know, uh, Ellis Palmer, such a nice guy. He'll turn up and clear all this stuff up for me. And, you know, he ends up dead and faceless. So I, I think you're right. The, the whole thing is conspiring uh, in, in very bad ways here. Yeah. And Lawrence is trying to point out just how this might go in the trial. He says, statements made against a man by his enemies always seem to have greater force than those made in favor by his friends. Oh, that's quite a good perennial truth right now. Yeah, and, I like and that. God knows the prosecution seemed to have scraped a great many together and to have tampered with almost everyone who's ever met him. Surely, and Mike, here's another little baby bombshell, surely it cannot be true that he's the father of a black Catholic priest. <laughs> I love the fact that Stephen misses the political point and just says, well, actually, he says, I'm going to correct you there. Um, he's not a priest. Um, and because he's illegitimate, because he's a bastard, he can't go further than minor orders, as, as if that makes it better. You know, Stephen, right. on this occasion, being right isn't going to make you happy. Lawrence sets him straight on the real political situation. 
we've got the the liability of having a judge who is against Catholic emancipation and who is a slave owner in the West Indies, and you're bringing in potentially the mention of an illegitimately fathered black Roman Catholic priest's son. And Stephen does say one thing, I think, here that really makes me go, yay for Stephen. He's absolutely got Jack's character nailed here. He says, conceivably, you mistake your man. From his jolly, rosy-gilled, well-fed appearance, you would scarcely think so. But he is, in fact, something of a stoic. He admires fortitude beyond any other virtue. And once he is tied to the stake, he feels he must go through with it. Oh, Mike. Apart from the unfortunate choice of simile there being tied to the stake. Right. And I love this analysis by Stephen of his friend. It just points out not only how deeply Stephen knows and understands and loves his friend, but also really how hopeless this situation is. Yeah. And and how Jack will just, as, as he says, stoically move through it. Yeah. Ah, God. You know, there's a part of me that says, Jack, get worried. Yeah. <laughs> Do something. But... Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Stephen knows him through and through. And and you talk about an unfortunate simile. Boy, you know, all the references that tied to the stake brings up. I don't like any of them. Uh-uh. Yeah. Well, Stephen reminds Lawrence that, you know, Lawrence has promised to make a shorthand report of the proceedings for him. So I love this. Stephen's like, you know, I'm not going to be there to see Jack humiliated, but I want a word for word transcription of this trial because I want to look at it later. And, and he tells Lawrence to get some rest. I mean, Lawrence is clearly sick and getting worse. And he does, you know, he wants Lawrence in better shape. But Lawrence tells him that he's defending a boy this afternoon and that if Lawrence can't convince the jury that this five guinea watch this boy stole is worth less than 12 pence, um, that the jury's going to sentence him to death. And so Lawrence, you know, God, I hate that. You know, we we have a world where that is the case. And I kind of, you know, see this as another sort of pointing out that Lawrence seems to be drawn to lost causes. His heart's in the right place, but I'm I'm not quite sure how it's going to turn out for the boy or for Jack. No. And we land on top of that, all of Lawrence's health concerns. He's got this terrible flu. And by the way, we had Jack stricken with a cold a few books ago. I think it was the beginning of the Ionian mission. And that really dragged on and dragged him down. And Lawrence is in a similar state here, probably even worse. He thinks, he says, he thinks he'll be fine for Jack's trial with this stuff called Quinn's draft. And I can almost visualize Stephen rolling his eyes at this point. Stephen thinks otherwise. Um, if he'd been able to give him pulvis doveri, the powder of Dover, he thinks he would have been fine. And this brings to mind Dr. Thomas Dover. So this is not a reference to the harbour town of Dover. This is a reference to somebody called Dr. Thomas Dover. He, Thomas Dover, was a privateersman who had sacked Guy Aquil. Um, somebody said this was no no way for a medical man to behave. Yes, you know. Stephen, Stephen's kind of thinking about privateering and buying this ship, <laughs> and, and now he's thinking about Dover. And, well, gosh, you know, he's a physician like I was, yeah. but he was also a Corsair. But I love that, right? No way for a medical man to behave, right? <laughs> and, Mike, there's another corner of the rug for us to lift here. This Thomas Dover was a real person, right? It, it really was. He was called Dr. Quicksilver, but you know, real, real Dr. Thomas Dover, he did develop a common cold and fever medicine, Dover's powder. He was a Corsair. He was the top investor in a privateer. And there were two ships that came out. He was the second captain. Um, they were off to find a Spanish treasure ship. Along the way, they found an Alexander Selkirk who'd been on one of the ships that they were kind of trailing. Uh, and he had been marooned alone on an island, and this was in 1705, and his story inspired the book Robinson Crusoe. So Selkirk's kind of adventure became Robinson Crusoe. Dover did lead this raiding party in the town, as Stephen had said. It's, it's part of what is now Ecuador. And he only lost two men in the raid itself. So an amazing victory. But these guys, in trying to find all the kind of gold and valuables there— they started digging up all the town's graves looking for valuables. And over Ooh. 180 of them got sick, you know, from digging into these graves. Dover was not acting in a medical capacity on the ships, but the four physicians that were divided by the ships had no idea what to do. And Dover took over and he used this kind of this diluted 
sulfuric acid drink to save them. And, and a few of them died, but most of them survived. Dover became incredibly rich from this pri- privateering mission itself, uh, uh, made over a million pounds in today's currency. And he wrote a book which got him the name Dr. Quicksilver, because one of the things in the book, and, and there's a lot of things where he kind of misdiagnoses and has some strange things, but some stuff that was you know fine as well. But one of them was his prescription of using mercury as a syphilis cure. But his book, you know, <laughs> sold widely, was commonly referred to. And so it was, uh, you know, it was kind of, you know, you, you saw some people starting to kind of poke holes in it, but, you know, they kind of were lost to the cry of public opinion. So his powder, which was a combination of, of opium and Ipecac and potassium sulfate, later mixed in with licorice, it had its quantities and the the proportions adjusted over time, was used for 200 years. So, So, Stephen, he actually admires this guy for having saved 200 of his men from the plague. And he's still thinking about Dover, still thinking about Jack's trial. He stops to send wine and a pie and Stilton cheese and potted anchovies to Jack's jail cell before he heads off and picks up puddings. And Mike, that I look back at all of this work that Jack's friends are doing to try and mobilize some support and try and hedge his position and try and protect him. And I'm a bit worried about the emphasis here that he's getting all this very rational, very knowledgeable support. We've got Stephen and Blaine and Lawrence and even Pratt, the thief taker. They're applying their best knowledge. They're trying to get a logical least worst outcome for him. And this gives me a strong sense of impending dread on behalf of Jack and I suspect that part of my dread here is that not many of these people are giving him much emotional support. Sophie is, but we're not hearing much about her. Now, m- maybe that's a very 21st century perspective and maybe Jack's stoic self is going to be fine, but Stephen's not getting reconciliation and comradeship and stiff upper lip from any of these people. He's getting hard-nosed advice. And maybe there's a point where the value of the hard-nosed advice runs out and you need somebody to say, I've got your shipmate. You know, I guess the old saying is, I don't care what you know till I know that you care. And, yeah. and I think Jack knows that some of these people care, but you're right. It's all in rational mode right yeah. now here. Yeah. And uh, I, I put myself in Jack's shoes and I think, I'm not sure who I'd rather have in my corner. If I had to choose between Stephen and Blaine on the one hand and Sophie... I think right now I'd take Sophie. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even it's it's funny, this difference that you mentioned, because, you know, I think there's a little reference, and I'm not sure if we've gotten to it yet, that, that Killick is being even, because he's worried about Jack, being kind of e- even more than usual, his sharper self to kind of say, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep you on your toes. This is his way of doing emotional support, is to be even a little bit more acerbic. Um, so... God, God bless Sophie and Killick. <laughs> yeah, amen. But we should also perhaps bless our listeners at the minute. I'm not sure whether they might need wine, a great pie, Stilton cheese and potted anchovies, or whether in fact they might need opium, ipecac and potassium sulfate. <laughs> but whichever of those combinations you need, let's take a few minutes to step away and see what's in the closet. And we'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. I hope those potted anchovies went well with your Stilton cheese and, and we rejoin our heroes back here. So after all this kind of gloom and impending chaos, we get a little light relief and optimism in the form of Tom Pullings. God bless Tom Pullings. I'm glad to have him back here. You know, Tom and Stephen are in a chase in four and they're riding to Portsmouth to get ready for the sale of the surprise. And and Tom is a little bit like a little kid. He's just telling Stephen about Oh my gosh, this is living. You know, you know, I, I've only ever been in one of these before, and it was with Captain Aubrey. And, you know, and he said about how he and Jack had skipped meals to make better time. And Stephen says, Yeah, that's exactly what we're gonna do now. We're not stopping for meals, we're riding straight through, so we're there to prepare to buy surprise. And Stephen wants to stop only to see Hedge Dundas. 
and perhaps to check on Reverend Martin. And he's thinking about maybe picking up Bondin and Padine at Ashgrove, uh, but but he's thinking, uh, wait a minute, you know, that's going to be another stop. It's a lot of weight. I don't know what to do. But thank goodness, you know, all of these, you know, we were talking, you had pointed out, these are all kind of Jack's talismans. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, God, we wish they were all there around them. Back to your point before break here. Yeah, but right now they're not, you know, God, I, you know, wouldn't it be great to have Bonded sitting in that outer room, not just Killick as well. But Stevens, you know, he's worried about this loss of time and weight and pulling says, well, wait a minute. If we stop by and see Hedge Nandas, he might be able to loan us a few men. Bonded could come down by coach, arrive the day after we get to surprise. I can get a few people together down there, and you know that way we can keep going. Stephen loves that. You know he loves how Pullings has kind of figured all this out, and then they kind of settle down to a more serious discussion. Stephen's still worried about buying the surprise and how Jack's going to take it, mm. and he's asking Pullings how disreputable privateering is um, and, and kind of what, you know, how should I describe this? What should I say? Should I say privateer? Should I say Corsair? Which is going to be least objectionable to a naval ear? And Pulling says that some of the young fellows now prefer the term Corsair after reading that poem by the Admiral's grandson and, and the Admiral's <laughs> grandson, you know, Steve's like, you mean Byron, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And, and, uh, but Pulling says that he thinks Captain Aubrey would prefer the old fashioned letter of Mark. And, and Pullings points out that, that, you know, even though privateers have a bad name, you know, kind of like sodomy says again, <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, he does say that many of their ships are indistinguishable from naval ships, except that they don't have a man of war's pennants and they don't have the uniforms. This conversation goes on with Stephen testing out what Tom knows about the world of privateering and everybody's likely response to the idea of, of privateerism. He asks whether, if Jack should be dismissed from the Navy, he, Jack, would find being a privateer repugnant. And Pulling says, well, it might depend on where you are. In home waters, where there are jealous, unofficer-like lubbers who perhaps have been offended by Jack in the past, they might harass him. They might stop him. They might call him aboard to show his papers, keep him waiting, maybe even press his men, insult him with no ability to reply. But, here's the big but, in more distant waters, like the Spanish Main, and mm, that means the South American Northeast Coast, so maybe that's not a million miles away from Chile and Peru. In more distant waters... He could be among friends and he could avoid enemies. And Pulling says, even in home waters, it would be better than eating his heart out on shore. Mm. And Pullings then asks how likely it is that this could come about. How likely is it that Jack could be undone in this trial? And Stephen says, my opinion is not worth the breath to utter it. Nothing do I know of the law at all, but I do remember that the Bible likens human justice to a woman's unclean rag and quasi panis menstruate and I have little faith in truth as an immediate safeguard in this world. Ah, oh, so it's pretty a pretty grim and you know, uh, distasteful comparison that Stephen's making to the quality of justice and Jack's prospects here. But let's go back to Byron for a minute. This poem that Pullings clearly has some distant recollection of. What's the connection there? Well, you know, the Admiral's grandson, as you say, Lord Byron, you know, English poet, peer, uh, kind of a leading figure of the Romantic movement, along with Shelley and others that, you know, he wrote this book, The Corsair, in, in 1814. It's written like Dante's Divine Comedy in verse in cantos. And, and it tells the story of this Corsair, this privateer slash pirate named Conrad, who's kind of one of these typical Byron-like anti-heroes. And and in this story, Conrad goes privateering in the Aegean Sea to attack this Pasha Syed. And not unlike other seafaring adventures that we know, women are also vitally important to this tale. <laughs> uh, the, the book was wildly successful. It sold like 10,000 copies its first day. And it has been read for many, many, many years after. And it paints a, a, a very romantic picture of a Corsair. And, and reading this, you get this feel like, 
I, I get it why pulling saying that people are reading this, boy, I'll bet Corsair sounds wonderful as opposed to prior, you know, pirate or privateer. Mm. So it goes like this. O'er the glad waters of the dark blue sea, our thoughts as boundless and our souls as free, far as the breeze can bear the billows foam, survey our empire and behold our home. These are our realms, no limits to their sway, our flag, the scepter, all who meet obey. Ours the wildlife in tumult still to range, from toil to rest and joy in every change. And I'm going to carry on to the more interesting lines that come afterwards. Oh, who can tell? Not thou, luxurious slave, whose soul would sicken o'er the heaving wave. Not thou, vain lord of wantonness and ease, whom slumber soothes not, pleasure cannot please. Oh, who can tell, save he whose heart hath tried and danced in triumph o'er the waters wide, the exulting sense, the pulse's maddening play that thrills the wanderer of that trackless way that for itself can woo the approaching fight and turn what some deem danger to delight, that seeks what cravens shun with more than zeal and where the feebler faint can only feel, feel to the rising bosom's inmost core, its hope awaken and its spirit soar. It's great, isn't it? This reminds me a lot of Mowat and all of his rhyming couplets. <laughs> right. And and boy, doesn't it make me want to run down to the docks and say, I'm getting on board. I'm with you. Come yeah. on, let's go. Wildlife in tumult. Ha, huh, wantonness, ease, danger, zeal. Oh, I'm, I'm right there. <laughs> it's great stuff. It's it's funny. As we were researching this, I, I did come across one. You know, there are books that have the Corsair, which runs about 100 pages, I think. And and one of them had a couple other poems with it, including inscription on the monument of a Newfoundland dog. And and I highly recommend that to everybody, along with the Corsair, because it sounded just like Stephen talking to Laura Fielding about dogs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it reminded me, of course, of Jack and Stephen. <laughs> yeah, very good. Maybe we could do a mashup inscription on the monument of an Illyrian Mastiff. That would be great. Oh, there you go. There you go. I love it. So uh, we're back in this world of debating the the indifferent quality of justice that might face Jack. And Stephen's been talking about this with Pullings, and he's mentioning that the Bible likens human justice to something unclean. And Mike, what, what what's the connection there in the Bible? Can we dig a little bit into Scripture for something there? Yeah. So this one, I, I was really kind of taken back by this. I thought, no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I, I do know that mankind or men, mankind have had this incredible fear of women <laughs> for a long time. And so, you know, the, the reference didn't surprise me, but human justice. And if you go back to Isaiah or Isaiah, for, yep. for those of you on, on the continent there, um, 64.6, and I, I'm going to use that 64.6 is the, is the verse that Stephen's mentioning too, but let me use five and six, just to give us a little context here. Um, so it, this is essentially the, you know, kind of uh, the prophet is is kind of talking to God and, and he's talking about, you know, God and his relationship to people. And he's comparing sort of God's ways to our ways. So in five, it says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry how then can we be saved? Uh, and then here's the verse that Stephen's referring to. And this is, this is the, the, the New International Version, just so it's easier to understand. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Mm. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So, I think here, really, this is man's, if you will, acts of righteousness or good deeds compared to God's, at yeah. least in the words of the prophet here. And and for for you know this particular prophet, you know, he's really setting up the need for grace. It says, look, we we can't save ourselves. We we all depend on a little grace here. And poor old Jack Blessing believes that justice will be righteous for him. Right. <laughs> and I think right, everybody right. is saying, uh, 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 justice is like a filthy rag. The, you, you, yeah. Now, you're, you're to that part, I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For Jack, justice here, yeah, probably more like that filthy rag. 
Well, it's, this hasn't yet completely put off Tom Pullings. I think he's willing to just wait and see. They, they, they carry on with this conversation. They, they stop by to see Captain Dundas. They debate a little bit on the kind of white lies that sometimes get told in Navy life and whether there's any analogy to those in everyday civilian life. And as they're having this conversation and talking about ship buying, Stephen reflects on how Tom Pulling has grown up. How he's changed from the young fellow he knew from years past, from his diffidence in London, whereas around the town of London, Tom Pullings is still a, you know, a working class guy with a sort of Southern English accent. He's modest and he's shy. By the coast, on the deck of a ship, in a shipyard, we have the fully adult Captain Pullings. And they spot the surprise and Tom says, oh, there she lays. Ain't she the loveliest thing you ever saw? Stephen agrees. She is too. For even, it says, to Stephen's profound ignorance, she stood out among the common workaday vessels like a thoroughbred in a troop of cart horses. And as they row out to the ship, Stephen looks at Tom and sees that he could deal with any commander in the service, let alone a gathering of marine brokers, shipbreakers, auctioneers, and the like. Love it. Oh, so we get, once again, this contrast between sailors ashore and sailors at sea. And as Tom gets somewhere near to being back in his native element. He's a real confident version of himself. They're both a bit dismayed by the merchants who are wandering around in greasy old clothes. They're prying about the surprise, evaluating her. Several of them make an approach to Tom to try to arrange under-the-counter non-competitive deals for parts of the ship. And Steve, I love the Stephen's got his talismans. In this case, it's all those Bank of England notes from those drafts that he has under his waistband. And as he touches them, he thinks about Diana and how much she loves auctions. And the little pang of the pain here, as he recalls the excitement, the colour in her face, her brilliant eyes, and how she couldn't sit still. And we learn in the text that Stephen's mind soon sank so deep that the clear vision of Diana standing just inside the door at Christie's, that's the auction house, with her head held high and her mouth opening in an expression of vivid triumph, did not fade until the auctioneer's hammer came down with a decided crack and pullings gave him joy of his purchase. God love you, doctor, he said in a wandering tone when the formalities were over and they were on deck again, to think you're the owner of surprise. It's a solemn thought, replied Stephen, but I hope I shall not be her owner long, I hope I shall find Mr. Aubrey happy and at large, ready to take her off my hands, though I love her dearly, so I do, as a floating home, an ark of refuge. Oh, Mike, and I, I really love reading this little chapter here as we reread that uh, there are scenes coming later that have a big emotional path that we're going to talk about. But I really like this little moment of Stephen and Tom aboard the deck of surprise, about their love for the ship, about her role as being a refuge. And that was just a really nice, touching, beautifully written moment. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I love how, you know, Orion kind of folds that all around to Stephen with one happy thought about Diana. Oh. And and kind of, you know, it's just all together there. You're right. It's it's almost like you know, in these in this tough times that we're in the midst of, there's this little oasis in the desert here, and yeah. and and surprise, God bless her, right right there. That's that's it. Ah, well, they they've won surprise, and the, the auction's been on the ship here, and and Pullings immediately starts chasing people who are trying to strip things from her. It, it's just as he thought that as soon as the auction's over and they're kind of moving over to the next thing for sale, going to the next one. People are trying to grab things off, including some boys in a raft kind of underneath trying to strip off the copper. And and Pullings is all over them, hollering and everything else. And then you know, he says something to Stephen and Stephen surmises uh, and he says, well, you mean to move away from the side I collect, away from the key or wharf? And Tom says, that's right, sir, out into the middle or center. <laughs> and Stephen says, well, then I shall step ashore now by this convenient bridge or gangway for were we in the middle, I should have to go down into a boat. And I'm not always quite at my ease going down into a boat. You may have noticed it. Oh, <laughs> not at all, sir. Not at all, said Pullings. Anyone can slip just a little. So another little reminder of the friendships, large and small, the love between 
these folks here and everybody who is just an absolute character in and of themselves, including Stephen trying to go up and down on boats. Oh, it's great. And I love how they're both being gentle with each other as well. Stephen is very kind of politely recalling his own weakness and Tom is very politely putting a bit of a gloss on it. Yes. So it's time to go back to London. Stephen takes a chase for the rest of the day and overnight. He has breakfast, he has a shave, he gets his wig powdered on St. James's Street and catches a hackney coach into the city. At the Guildhall, another case is in progress. Stephen follows this case thinking that Jax may start again later. And Mike, this is, this is the key moment. He sat there contemplating Lord Quinborough, a heavy, glum, dissatisfied man whose thick, insensitive face had a wart on its left cheek. The judge had a loud droning voice and he very often raised it, interrupting one counsel or another. Stephen had rarely seen so much self-complacency, hardness and want of common feeling gathered together under a single wig. And this is all of our dread and all of our foreboding raised to fever pitch here as we think, okay, this is the moment when Jack's trial is going to come on and classic O'Brien. Stephen finally asks an attendant about what he thinks is Captain Aubrey's forthcoming trial. And the attendant says, the stock exchange fraud? Why, it's all over. Was over yesterday. They come up for sentence early next week. And won't they cop it? Wow. (laughs) Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) Right. Oh, my Uh, gosh. This is is the moment we've been waiting for. And it's one of those moments (laughs) where you go, wait, 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 flip back, flip back. Let me read those last paragraphs again. Did I miss something? And O'Brien's just dropped this bombshell of the result of the trial, which, by the way, if you hadn't figured, was always going to be the same as the outcome in Cochrane's trial, which was that he was found guilty. And all of our expectation has been swiped from under us. We get the big denouement. We get the big news in reported speech from a secondary character. Oh, my gosh. Right. And, you know, just, you know, it, 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 it just as shorthand as we can be. Here's Stephen looking at the judge. He's as horrible as, as Lawrence has said. And this attendant going, you know, and won't they cop it? So apparently it did not go well at all. And we're not looking for a good sentence here. Oh. Well, Stephen, you know, knowing that the trial is over, he, he leaves and he can't find a hackney coach. And I'm sure his mind is whirling as he hurries through the crowds. And, and he tends to realize that he seems to have passed the same church several times. He's passed the gates of Bedlam twice. And O'Brien writes, Presently, his rapid walking took on the quality of a nightmare. But the fourth time he reached Love Lane, it was Love Lane that foxed him every time, he chanced upon an unemployed ticket porter who led him to the river. Here he took a pair of oars, and the tide being in his favor, the waterman brought him to the temple stairs in less time than he had taken to reach Bedlam from Guildhall. And I was just blown away by this little description here. You know, this rapid walking, taking on the quality of a nightmare. Certainly, you know, Stephen and Jack are both in the midst of these walking nightmares, these waking walking nightmares right now. And it's Love Lane that always foxed him. You know, certainly, you know, Stephen's been foxed by Love Lane. And, and I haven't counted, but but I wouldn't be surprised if it's been at least four times with Diana. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack, perhaps, you know, being foxed by Lust Lane a little bit more than Love Lane. <laughs> but, you know, and then what saves them always, even Stephen here, getting to the water, a pair of oars and the tide being in his favor. And then it says it moved him quicker than it takes to reach Bedlam from Guildhall. So Bedlam, the home of crazy people. Yeah. And and I suspect people, a lot of people were going very crazy after they had been tried in Guildhall. This is known as kind of the home of the big set piece political trials here. Yeah. Um, and, and it makes me worry a little bit. Where does it say that Jack is? You know, as it's so quick to reach Bedlam from Guildhall. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Stephen going a little crazy with what's going on here. I'm really anxious to find out what's going on with Jack. Yeah. <sighs> so hopefully, hopefully Jack is holding up okay. Yes. Stephen, meanwhile, has to go and find out the blow by blow. 
So we are going to get a little bit of it, it turns out. We're going to get some of the description, but it's going to get reported to us by Lawrence because Stephen calls in on Lawrence, finds him very sick and wretched. The, the remedy from Quinn clearly hasn't helped. Lawrence is wretched in his sickness. He's wretched as a lawyer and he's wretched as a man. He tells him that all of the defendants in the trial, Jack and his co-defendants, were found guilty. Do you remember, he says, I told you to bring Aubrey's ideas of the law, or rather the administration of justice, down to a less exalted pitch? Well, he said, if you had spoken with the tongues of men and of angels, you could not have done better than Quinborough and Pierce. It was butchery, Maturin, butchery, long drawn out, cold, deliberate butchery. I've seen some ugly political trials, but none to touch this. I had no idea that government thought General Aubrey and his radical friends so important or that they would go to such lengths to attack them, such lengths to obtain a conviction. And by the way, Mike, this this is going to be a description very largely lifted from the description of the trial of Thomas Cochrane in the 1814 trial, exactly as O'Brien says in his author's note. Some of these things that sound like really horrific ancient medieval justice and cruelty that you think that's not believable. This is what actually happened in Cochrane's right. trial. Right. Aubrey, as we know, and this had come up in the trial, Aubrey had made a fortune in prize money by using tricks like false colours. He'd made hazardous speculations, was in the midst of legal cases that might sweep away everything he possessed. This is the case being made by Pierce, the prosecutor, in front of the judge. He needed a large sum of money. He'd landed on the cartel at Dover. He'd shared a chase with this mysterious unknown gentleman who had become his false colours. Mr. Palmer is said to have deceived Aubrey. As Lawrence says, it's Palmer's fault. They can't shift the blame onto Palmer because he's not there. Things that do not appear and things which do not exist, the rule in legal proceedings is the same. If they can't produce him legally, then Palmer doesn't exist. Stephen asks how Jack had taken all of this. And after the notes on false colours being passed backwards and forwards, he says Jack had just become detached, except for one time when he glanced at the prosecutor, Pierce, the text says, with an objective contempt that stopped him in his stride, for he caught the full look in the eye as he turned to make his point about warriors not making such good citizens as merchants. Oh, and Mike, we get this really grim account of Jack settling in to endure this horrible, horrible, clearly biased political trial. The defendant's attorney had rambled and put the jury to sleep. It was late at night. This, again, is an exact echo of what happened in the Cochrane trial. They pointed out some of the mitigating circumstances like that Jack had not sold at the top of the market, but they got to the point where it was 3 a.m. and nobody had paid any attention. After an 18-hour sitting, the judge adjourned without hearing the defense witnesses. So the jury are stepping away from the trial now, exhausted, bored, tired, done out of their wits, and with the last words of the prosecution ringing in their ears. So the next day, you know, they put up the defense witnesses. It really doesn't do anything for Jack. Pierce, the prosecutor, had already said, you know, Jack had a great war record. He was a distinguished captain. But, you know, he had made this case that he had sort of brought his sea tactics of false colors to land, that he had made up this story about Palmer and everything. So even though the first Lord, and it was nice to hear that Melville had had spoken on Jack's behalf, the jury was really done and tired. Pierce just used simple, repetitive arguments. He also pointed out that, you know, like Jack's father had run away along with other defendants, sort of admitting their guilt. And then the judge himself took three hours to sum up, kind of going point by point and essentially instructing the jury to convict, you know, kind of disregarded everything from the defense, made every point of the prosecution again. And, and, and Lawrence even pointed out that this judge who really got and gotten old and lost it a little bit seemed like he was in rare form because he was so intent on getting these radicals here. Lawrence had written Jack a note telling him to prepare for the worst. Um, and Aubrey really had just been kind of lumped in with all these other shock jobbers, all these other people who clearly had manipulated the market, even though Jack had you know, made his investments in innocence. You know, it took the jury you know, less than an hour to come back and convict him. And Lawrence says, he shook my hand and thanked me for my efforts. I could scarcely get a word out in reply. I shall see him again when he comes up for sentence on the 20th. And Stephen asks, what will the sentence be, do you suppose? And Lawrence says, I hope, I hope it will only be a fine. 
And there we end chapter eight. Mm. Wow. Well, hope is very fine, but it does sound like it's a slender hope. And we know what some of the possibilities are. And maybe if you skipped ahead or you know any of the story of Thomas Cochrane, you know what might be awaiting Jack here. Lawrence certainly doesn't sound confident about the sentence. Could Jack be facing jail? How big might this fine be? Is he back in the situation of looking at bankruptcy and personal ruin? Could it put him back in the debtor's prison? Certainly, Mike, nothing's gone as well as anyone hoped, and it's certainly gone easily as badly as everybody feared. Is it possible it could somehow be worse? Right. Gosh, I don't know, Ian. I'm, I'm ready to forge ahead quickly to find out what's going on. What would you say next week, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien. With all my heart. back i hope those potty sorry not the potty, <laughs> not the potty anchovies well there we go there's an outtake for us <laughs>